You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit stonegate.church. Well, I want to start by uh, um, just sharing something with you. Uh, Over the last month or so, I have grown to love and watch, a lot of my wife would say, a specific TV show. Uh, It's a TV show on the History Channel called Alone, and it's been going for seven or so seasons. Some of you may not have any idea what it is, and I just introduced you to it. And if you're into anything sort of outdoorsy, you just found your next two months addiction. If you're not, let me just catch you up. So in the series, what happens is they take 10 survival experts, most of them self-taught, self-trained, and they drop them off in these super remote, really hard places, places where people don't live, like they actually can't or don't live because it's so difficult to live there. Um, Vancouver Island on the like Northwest America, Southwest uh, of Canada, Mongolia, um, Patagonia, and the Arctic are the places where they've been. These are super remote, really hard places to live, and they drop them off multiple miles away from one another, and they're all alone. And they get to bring with them 10 tools, and it's the first, the, the, the last one to give up wins. That it's, you have your 10 tools, your clothes, you go out into the wilderness, there's no one else there, you're all by yourself, you have your 10 tools, and it's the last one to give up, wins a half a million dollars. So there's multiple seasons where one person, or multiple people have given up on the first day. And some of them go 70, 80 days, living and surviving. They don't bring any food with them, living and surviving in and what they have created with the 10 tools that they have in their backpack. I find it super fascinating for a lot of reasons. Some of it's the psychology behind being alone for that long. Some of it's the survival parts of what's going on there. But one of the questions that repeatedly has come up as we have watched the show, we meaning me mostly, um, (laughs) um, one of the things that has repeatedly come up along that journey is this question. Why did you pick that? Like, Like, why did you choose that tool? Like, of the 50 things you can pick from, why did you pick those 10, or particularly that one, all of them have some sort of value system that they bring into, or some sort of metric in which they're using to decide. Of this list of 50 survival kind of tools, tarps and saws and knives and axes and fishnets and fish hooks and wire and cord and bow and arrow, all this stuff, why'd you pick that? That all of them have some form of a value system or metric that they bring to the table to decide I need this. And what is it? What is that value system? What is it that leads them to make that choice? And it has to be something along the lines of, this will either keep me out here longer, sustain my life longer, or this will help me get something that will help me sustain my life longer out here. It's a tool that I can then maybe build my shelter with, or it's something that I can catch animals with, or something that I can catch fish with, or something that that tool, I believe, over and above the other 40 will help me to live a sustained life out here in the wilderness longer. It's really just a rephrasing of this question that many of us have probably had at a dinner table conversation or in a car ride or, or on some journey of, hey, if you were stranded on a deserted island, and you could only have three things with you, what would you bring? Most of us have probably asked that question just in conversation with our kids or our friends or whatnot, or thought about it in some way. Uh, I want to ask it this way, in a little bit more narrow scope, what is the one thing that is most valuable in all of your life? In every area of your life, to your life and in your life, what is the one thing that is most valuable? 
that, that everything else, if it had to go, I would need this. What is that? Well, Psalm 1, our psalm that we're going to be in, in this morning, we're going to see that the most valuable thing in all of our lives is the Word of God. That the most valuable thing in all of our lives is the Word of God. Rachel and I, we've actually thought and asked a question along the journey of watching multiple seasons of Alone. You think they're allowed to bring a Bible? I mean, there are Christians on the show, they talk about Jesus and, and whatnot at times. Or do you think they're allowed to bring their Bible? That's a question that's come across my mind as, as I've watched the shows. If I'm out there, I want my Bible. I want my Bible. And why? And Psalm 1's going to open that up for us. And here's the main point. So uh, we're here this morning. I know from my experience of five months of watching and interacting with church online, sometimes things can get distracted. So if you're, if you're joining us in your living room, here's the one thing that we need to walk away with today. So if you get distracted along the way, it's okay. This is the one thing. God's word is an extraordinary gift that leads to life. I'm going to say it again. God's word is an extraordinary gift that leads to life. And it leads to life in three particular ways, and we're going to walk through all of these. It leads to joyful life, one. It leads to nourished life, two. And three, it leads to eternal life. And the words there are incredibly important for us to understand that it leads to joyful, nourished, and eternal life. So let's walk through these. Let's walk through these, starting in, in Psalm 1, verse 1. It begins like this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. You see, this is Psalm 1. It's the first of 150 songs, and a lot of scholars believe that the, the psalms are structured and written, compiled these songs for the nation of Israel in a specific and intended way to parallel the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, because the psalms are actually broken up into five books. And why would they do that? They, they would do that because they're intending to take the instruction of God and in song form bring along our emotions and our hearts. So many of you have probably experienced a time in your life where there's a particular truth that you've believed, but there's a song you encounter along the way. Maybe it comes on the radio, somebody introduces you to it. And that song has a way of awakening your heart and your emotions, not just your mind, in and around the truth that it carries. And this can be specifically like Christian music or, or songs that we sing here, but it also plays out in other areas of our life. Like there's a, there's a love that I have for my wife and there's some songs that when I listen to, they awaken the emotions of my heart to that truth that I love her. In the same way, the Psalms are intended by God, constructed by his people, led by the Holy Spirit, to take the instruction of God and the emotion of his people and weave them together in song. And weave them together in song. They instruct the people of God in their thinking and in their emotions as these are tightly woven together, but they're specifically introduced alongside of one another, the instruction of God and the emotion of man together in Psalm 1. It says this, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. See, every one of us, this first part opens up with this blessed, this blessed man. Every one of us has a longing for a joyful and happy life. 
Every one of us do. Deep within our being is this longing for joy. It's part of the way the Lord has created us, and we find in and around us this constant competition for where you're going to find that joy. Be that in, in youth, and I don't mean like as a teenager, but in young life. Look at how much money is spent in our world to prolong youthfulness. In, in, in beauty, in fame, in success, in wealth, in health, in duty, in structure, in freedom, in sensuality, all of these things marketing for saying, hey, in all this, in this particular thing, you will find the joy that your soul longs for. And these are competing arguments. This is what we see in, in the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon, one, one of the kings of the people of Israel, wrote the book of Ecclesiastes to his son to show him his foolishness of a life pursuing this joy in other things. He says this in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 1. I said in all my heart, come now, test I, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. That Solomon set out on a journey to, to find in the world the joy and the life that his, his, that his heart longed for. And he didn't hold back anything. I mean, the guy built forest. Who does that? Built a forest. Why? Thinking maybe if I build a forest, my heart will find the joy it longs for. Or another house over here, another house over there. That might sound a little bit more like the American dream. If I have this house over here and the one I currently live in, then maybe I'll have that joy. You see, Solomon didn't, didn't hold his heart back from the pursuit of this pleasure, from this joy. In work, he pursued it. In self-indulgence, in living wisely, in wealth, and in honor, he sought these things out. And in all of his pursuits, he writes in Ecclesiastes, none of them filled the longing of my heart. None of them met the joy that I seek. And the irony of Psalm 1, most likely written by Solomon's dad, is Psalm 1 is saying this, blessed, joyful is the man. You want to find the joy that your heart longs for. Well, here it is. Here it is. Here is the way to the joy life that you long for. It's not in the counsel of the wicked or the instruction of the wicked. You see, Psalm 1 begins by comparing what the blessed man, the joyful life, is not found in, the way of the wicked. The way of the wicked, the counsel, the instruction of the wicked, the, the life, the way of the sinner, or the seats of scoffers, that it is not found there. So we can look throughout our, our, our own lives and throughout the scriptures and see that the way of the wicked, seeking out our joy in our sin, leads to sorrow. It doesn't lead to joy and fulfillment. It leads to sorrow. This is what we see in Genesis, in the fall of humanity. The serpent promises, like so often wickedness does, the joy that your soul longs for will be found in this. Just take the fruit and eat it. They take it, they eat it. You need this. But what happens? Brokenness, shame, division, exile, sorrow, pain, death, all of which God promised would come. He told them it would happen. You see, for each one of us, we have this competing desire. Like we want this joy life. We want this life of joy but Psalm 1 begins by saying, it is not found 
in those things. It is not found in the life of wickedness and sin. Then where is it found? He says in delight in the law of the Lord. He says that the, the, the joyful life is found by the man who delights in the law of the Lord. And the word delight here literally means pleasure, whose pleasure is in the word of God. The, the man whose pleasure is in the word of God. And, and in the word of God, when he says the law, what does that mean? Okay, does it mean the whole Bible? Well, you can, in multiple different places in scripture, the law or, or the instruction or the precepts of the Lord, especially throughout the Psalms, they're pointing to a variety of different things, but it's clear from the context of Psalm 1 leading us into the whole rest of the Psalms that he's pointing back to, for his original audience, the first five books of the Bible, but not in the way that we might think of the word law. See, for us, oftentimes when we think of law, we think of, oh, this is a bunch of if you want to be blessed, you want to have the joyful life, then do all these things, and therefore equals joyful life. But when we look not at just Psalm 1, but at the whole of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, it's not written like a list of do's and don'ts. It's not written like you might see a law book today. It's written like a story. It's written like a story. And so when he says, Blessed is the man whose delight, whose, whose pleasure is found in the law. It's found in the story of the word of God. Then the story of the word of God in the law, specifically you see this pattern play out with the people of God. God gives his people some instruction. They disobey his instruction. There's a discipline or consequence for their disobedience. It may be exile, it may be pain, it may be death, whatever it may be, there's a consequence for their rebellion and disobedience. And then God sends some form of a messenger who speaks to the people of God, they hear, they are awakened to God, they return in repentance, and the Lord is gracious and kind and forgiving to his people. What is that a story of? It's not a story of a bunch of do's and don'ts, it's a story of a redemptive relationship between a rebellious people and their merciful God. And so when he says the, 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 the blessed, the, the life, the joyful life is found by the man who delights in the law of the Lord, he's saying the joyful life is found by the man who, through the word of God, finds a delightful savior in, in God himself, a merciful and gracious God. That it's not a means of duty to the law of God, but a means of life where we're humbled by the word of God as we're brought back by his grace, by its gift to him where we receive mercy and forgiveness. See, most of us, when we think about the, the combination of the word delight and the word of God, it's probably more like my relationship with spinach. Some of you are like, I love spinach. It's like, cool, you can do that. Um, I don't. Like, so spinach... And I have this kind of relationship. If it's in a salad and I'm at somebody's house, I'll eat it. But I'm more of like the, the ribeye and the potato followed by the ice cream kind of guy. Like that's just a part of that's, that. That's what I want. I want the ribeye, the potato, and the ice cream. I, I'm not a fan of the spinach, but if it's there and, and yeah, I know I should eat it, then I, then I will. Especially if it's cooked in a lot of butter. <laughs> and here, here's the deal. My relationships with spinach is not a, sp a relationship of delight, despite the fact that spinach has a lot of good things that I need. It's more of a relationship of duty. 
See, but the word of God is an extraordinary gift, not a gift of duty, but a gift of delight, because it leads us to God, in whom we find the joyful life that we each long for. That God's word is an extraordinary gift that leads us to the joyful life. A.W. Tozer put it this way, in the pursuit of God. If you haven't read it, phenomenal book. Go read it. The Bible is not an end in itself, but a means to bring men to an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God, that they may enter into him, that they may delight in his presence, may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God himself in the core and center of their hearts. Let me summarize that for you. God's word is an end in itself. Its intent is to bring you into intimate relationship with God. So why is the blessed man blessed through his delight in the law of the Lord? Because in the law of the Lord, in the word of God, he sees and finds the Lord in whom he finds the joy he longs for. So I want to encourage you that if you, you sit here now in, in this, this moment, hits you in this place of, man, I don't think that my life and relationship to the word of God would be described in the word delight. Maybe much more like duty. Or maybe it wavers. Some days it's delight, some days it's duty. Uh, what do we see this blessed man do? This blessed man finds his delight in the law of the Lord, and he what? He meditates on it day and night. And the word meditate here is the word to mutter or growl. It's the same word that in the Old Testament we see in the Hebrew used for like the sound a lion makes, which is kind of weird to think that he growls to the word of God. But, but it's like, it's this muttering. It's this like murmuring to oneself the very words of God. It's this constant reminding of the truth of who God is, the mercy and grace that we find in him that leads to a deeper, greater delight in the word of God, in him. So I want to encourage you that, that if the joyful life, according to Psalm 1, that we all long for is found in a delight in the word of God because it leads us to him, that you would begin to take into practice the spiritual discipline centering around the word of God. You see, we oftentimes want the fast track. We want the, like, the, we don't want to eat the spinach. We'll take a vitamin, <laughs> right? Um... But meditating on the law of the Lord and having a rhythm of the spiritual disciplines in your life leads to a deeper delight in the word of God and therefore in him. And so to, to sit and think, okay, how do I build the rhythms and patterns of my week by week, my day by day around communing with God through his word that leads to a joyful life in him? And to consider, maybe that looks like waking up earlier in the morning. Maybe it looks like uh, turning the TV off a little bit earlier in the evening. Maybe it looks like um, taking a, 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 a fast from this lunch, this day of the week, to spend time just reading the Word of God. Uh, maybe it looks like inviting somebody else into that. Whatever it may be, to center your life around a delight in the law of the Lord that leads, leads to joy in life in Him. And then maybe if you're, you're convicted in this moment that you don't find delight in the law of the Lord, but you've actually been trying to find delight in life, joy in life, in sin, to own it and bring it to the Lord. He's a gracious and merciful God who's big enough to hear it and say, okay, I love you. I love you. I forgive you. To bring that before the Lord. 
So why is the word of God an extraordinary gift? Because it leads to a joyful life. But it doesn't only lead to a joyful life, which is our first thing. It also leads to the second thing, a nourished life. It leads to a nourished life. The word of God is an extraordinary gift that leads to nourished life. And as the psalm continues, he uses an illustration to, to, to teach us this. Illustrations in song. It's pretty common. Verse 3 says this. He is like a tree planted by the stream of water. The he there is the blessed man who's delighting in the law of the Lord. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. See, the one who delights in the word of God is like a nourished tree. It's like a nourished tree. And a nourished tree is a tree that bears its fruit in season. Its fruit is produced why and how? Why, why does the pecan tree in your yard, or if you have a fruit tree in your yard, or if you think about the parable when Jesus, is, I mean, he uses an illustration in this, he's walking with his disciples along the road and he sees the fig tree not bearing fruit. Like, like why are some trees fruitful, literally, like they have the produce necessary or that they're intended to produce, and why are some not? The reason a tree is fruitful is because it has the necessary and essential nutrients required for that plant to produce the fruit that it is designed by God to produce. That it has the necessary and essential fruit or or nutrients that it requires in order to produce that fruit. Why does a tree's leaves not wither? See, he paints a picture of a tree that's leaves are always there. Think like uh, um, like your live oak tree. They're green all year long. They're not an evergreen tree in the sense that like a fir tree kind of thing, but they they're green all year long. They have their leaves all year long. Why? What leads to a, a tree having the kind of health that its leaves never fall off? Well, it has the essential and necessary hydration for those leaves and the tree's life to be green and luscious and pliable and not like the fall in the winter here where they fall off and they die and they come brittle and they turn into dirt. The leaves don't wither because they have the essential and necessary hydration needed to keep them life, lively. Uh, the prospering life or this, this, this description of a, like the tree that you know, the man that is prospering all that he does, the word prosper here in the Hebrew is getting at that it is a successful tree. And not successful in the sense of like, when you think, oh, successful, that means that I'm going to have everything that I want. No, successful meaning that it accomplished what it was supposed to accomplish. That a tree is supposed to be fruitful. A tree is supposed to have green leaves. So when he's getting at here, when he says that he is like a, a, a li- his life is one that prospers, is that it's, a, it's like a tree that is fruitful and it has its foliage and therefore is a successful tree. It's accomplished what it's intended to do. And so what he's saying here is that the one who delights in the word of God receives the nourishment necessary in order for their life to be fruitful, their leaves to not wither, decay, dry, and for them to be successful, to accomplish what the Lord intended on them to accomplish. Unlike the the chaff, which he says in verse 4, the wicked are not so. They're not like this tree. They are like chaff. So what is chaff? 
If you were to, to harvest wheat or see somebody harvest wheat, um, in the early days of wheat growing, there's some leafy plants that grow up, just like all of them. As it grows up uh, and the, um, the kernels begin to bud or grow on the plant, there's chaff. And chaff is the leaf that encapsulates the actual grain. And you could go through there and you could peel the chaff back and pluck off each individual one, but that's not what they did. What do they do? You can probably see this going down 67 right now. They come through and they, they cut the whole plant down. And they gather up the whole plant and they take the whole plant to the threshing floor, which is like a big circle typically that's a number of feet for somebody to be actually able to stand down inside of where they're away from the wind. The wind would blow over the top of this hole. They take all the grain down there and they begin to beat it and crush it and smash it and all that kind of stuff. And then they would take some form of tool called a pitchfork or whatever, and they would scoop up the wheat and they would throw it up in the air. And when they would throw all the plant up in the air, the wind would blow across the top of the threshing hole and the leafy parts of the plant would be carried away and the grain would fall down into the hole because the grain had a substance and a weight to it that the leafy, dry, chaff, leaf part of the plant didn't. So what he's getting at here is you have this illustration of the man who delights in the law of the Lord has the nourishment of a tree that is fruitful and luscious. But the wicked are like dry, brittle, broken leaves that just blow away and waste. That just blow away and waste. And this is the narrative that the Bible gives of the wicked. This is the narrative of the Bible that the, the, that the Bible gives of the wicked. It's, it's Genesis 3. Sin leads to death. Eat the fruit and you're going to die. And reiterated again in Romans. The wages of sin is death. This is Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that seems right unto man, the counsel of the wicked, but its end is death. Like the chaff on a piece of wheat is dry, brittle, broken, and dead. But the man who delights in the law of the Lord is not so is not so. See, why is the tree so much more healthy than the chaff? Why is the life of the person who delights in the law of, of the Lord so much more nourished? Why? It, it doesn't have really anything to do with the DNA of the chaff or the DNA of the tree, but has everything to do with where their roots are. You see, the tree is planted by the stream of water. The chaff is cut down. You see, the tree is connected to the source of nourishment that it needs, the source of hydration that it needs for fruitfulness, for flourishing, and to accomplish what it's intended to do. See, what Psalm 1 is getting at here is that this stream is the word of God to your life. That when you delight in the law of the Lord, you are connected to the nutrients that are necessary for your nourishment in life. This is why the word of God is an extraordinary gift that leads to the nourished life. Why? Because it's connected to the source of nourishment. This is what Jesus gets at in Psalm or uh, in Proverbs or John 15 when he talks about the branch that's disconnected from the vine. 
What does it do? It dries, it withers, and it's not fruitful, whereas the one connected to the vine produces lots of foliage and lots of grapes. And Charles Spurgeon said it this way, quoting Jesus, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus says that in the desert with no food, by the way. God's word, God's words are meat and drink and food. And if the body lives not on words, souls and spirits feed upon the words of God and are satisfied and full of delight. That your soul, your spirit needs the nourishment that it was intended to have in and from God and his word leads us to him. You see, let me put it in in an illustration. So Rachel and I have been married for 10 years, and in those 10 years, and before we got married, we read marriage books. We we have on and off throughout our marriage. Uh, Those marriage books, Christian, really great, really phenomenal marriage books, have an intended purpose. And those books are intended to bring a deeper connection and relationship between me and my wife. They're not intended to just give me a bunch of information for me to store in my head that never lead to a deeper connection to my wife. You see, in, in these good Christian marriage resources, they should, and their intent is to drive me into a deeper intimate relationship with my wife. It, they're not intended for me to find the connection that my, my heart longs for, for my wife. It would be like saying, instead of being married, I'm going to read marriage books. Like, it, it, it's not going to do it. It's not going to cut it. Those books are intended to lead you to a deeper connection, deeper intimacy with your wife. And filling your head with all the knowledge of a healthy marriage does not lead to a healthier marriage. It leads you to your spouse, where you can then enter into a healthy, flourishing relationship with them. In the same way, the Word of God leads to a nourished life because it's the connection that we have to God Himself. It's how he speaks to us. It's how he leads. It's how he guides. It's, it's where we find intimacy with him in and in, in his word. See, the word of God is the source of nourishment because it connects us to him. So we meditate on his word. We drive the roots of our life deep down into the streams of his word where we receive the nutrients we need from him as he speaks. So meditate on the word of the Lord. Meditate on the word of God. Many times we find ourselves going to dry riverbeds and deserts, seeking the nourishment that our hearts and souls need instead of the streams of his nourishment in his word. And oftentimes these can be good gifts that don't bring the nourishment our hearts long for, but we go there in hopes that they will. It can be things like other people, our friends, our our spouse, our kids, or a boss of some sort that we want to please, and therefore we'll find the nourishment that our souls long for. It may be on social media. Through social media, I'll find the nourishment that my heart longs for, the, the, ad, uh, the affirmation that my soul longs for. In there I'll find the nourishment for my soul. Or maybe in knowledge, like, well, if I just know enough, if I pursue enough knowledge, if I learn all that there is to be around and about this, then I'll have the nourishment that my soul longs for. Or maybe it's in adventure. But if I go on an adventure, my soul will find rest in and nourishment in life. 
So let's go on a vacation. Let's go on an extravagant trip. Maybe it's in rest you believe you'll find the nourishment that your soul longs for. Man, if I could just take a break. Man, if I could just have one more week's vacation. Man, if I could just get somebody else to watch my kids for one night, then my soul will have the nourishment that it needs. Maybe it's in wealth. Well, if we get to this point financially, then nourish life. We can have the things that we need. We can then be generous, the lies that we believe. Maybe it's, it's in sex that I find in physical relationship with my spouse, the nourishment that my soul longs for and needs, the nourished life. Maybe it's in religion. Well, if I'm, just, if I'm just more devoted to Jesus, if I just more faithfully pray, if I just more faithfully read the word, then I'll find nourishment. I just need to do these things. I mean, I, I, just, I, mean, I, I don't feel good right now in my, my, my faith because I, I haven't been going to church. I haven't been, the, the, the story, the, the list the, that, we, that go on. That nourished life comes in all these things. None of these things are in and of themselves wrong, but they're not the place that we find nourishment. That our souls long for nourishment and it's found in God and his word is the streams that deliver the nutrients that we need. See, God has graciously given us his word as an extraordinary gift that leads to a joyful life and it leads to a nourished life, but it also leads to eternal life. That the word of God is an extraordinary gift that leads to eternal life. This is number three, if you're following along or taking notes. That it leads to a joyful life, what our souls long for here in joy and happiness. It leads to a nourished, fruitful, accomplished, purposeful life, and it leads to uh, eternal life. You see, verse 5 and 6 say this. Follow along if you're still there. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinner in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. See, this starts with blessed, and it ends with death. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment. And that every one of us at the end of our lives will stand before a great just judge. And in that judgment, we will either be seen as wicked or as righteous. We will either be judged as wicked or we will be judged as righteous. The Bible doesn't have a third category. It has wicked and it has righteous. It has sinner and without sin. Wicked righteous. That's, that's what the scriptures ongoingly paint for us, is this picture of a wicked or a righteous person. And both will stand before the judgment of God. One righteous, one wicked. And, and so the question poses is, if every one of us are going to stand before God, okay, how do I know who's righteous and how do I know who's wicked? Not really, maybe, hopefully not, because you're like, oh, is that person? But no, so like you can understand. Am I wicked in the eyes of God or am I righteous? before God. Let me put it real synced and real clear. Who is wicked? Everyone apart from Jesus. Who is wicked? Everyone apart from Jesus. And it plays itself out in a lot of ways. It plays itself out in self-righteousness, in religion, Pharisees. It plays itself out in rebellion. 
Think about the, the story of the two sons, or the prodigal son or the lost son, however you want to paint the title of that. You have the wayward son who takes the money and runs away, and then you have the son who stays devoted. One of them shows his wickedness in his running. The other one shows his wickedness in unwillingness to come to the party. But both are wicked. There's two categories, wicked and righteous. Oftentimes, we have a rose-colored view of ourselves. And we're like, man, I'm not that bad. I'm not that wicked. Like, wicked, that's a real hard word. Like, could we say something else? We say, like, like, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, but the decent will. I know I'm not, I'm not, maybe I'm not righteous, but I'm not wicked. There's no third person in the scriptures. Romans 3, quoting Psalm 14, says this. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside, and therefore they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That everyone apart from Jesus is wicked. To have sinned, singularly, is to be wicked. And therefore to stand before God and not stand in his judgment, but be condemned. To not sit in the congregation of the righteous for all of eternity, but to be cast out. To perish in eternal death. Well, who is righteous? Who is righteous? Wicked people in Jesus. Who is righteous? Wicked people in Jesus. You see, Jesus is the only one who has perfectly fulfilled the law. He's the only one who in and of himself is righteous. But in the gospel, the word of God, the whole narrative of it is the story of God coming to accomplish righteousness and to, in his grace and mercy, give it to those who would come and just simply believe. That Jesus has accomplished all that the law was, in, was requiring. He's done all of it. Whereas we are wicked and we have failed to keep all of the law. Therefore we're wicked. Jesus has, he has succeeded in accomplishing all of the law. Never sinned. Jesus not only lived a perfect life accomplishing righteousness. He took all of our wickedness and its condemnation, shame, and judgment. Laid upon himself and died the death. The perishing that every one of us deserve. And he invites you into that life now. See, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He, meaning God, made him, Jesus, to be your sin, to take your wickedness, even though he had no sin of his own. So that in him, Jesus, you might receive the righteousness that he achieved, that he earned in his perfect life. 
This is the great exchange. He takes your sin, you get his righteousness. He takes your wickedness and he says, you're without sin now. And Jesus invites you into that life now. The good news of the gospel is that the standard from God of eternal life is high, like way higher than any of us could achieve because it's perfection. But by his grace, Jesus came, accomplished it for you, and freely gives to all who would believe his righteousness. So come. If you're at home or on your phone or wherever, come to Jesus. In him you will receive the righteousness of God. And in that eternal life. See, the extraordinary gift of God's word leads to eternal life because it awakens us to our own wickedness and it unveils to our eyes the righteousness of God in Jesus in your place and he gives it to all who would believe. So today, confess Jesus as your Lord if you have not, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and receive eternal life, righteousness, his atonement for your sin. Come to Jesus in whom you find life now and forever. I want to encourage you this morning that if you've not ever believed in Jesus, like I'm not saying you went to church or grew up in whatnot, saying if you were to really sit quietly with yourself, you'd be awakened to the sin that you've lived in and committed. And the only hope you have is to believe in Jesus, that he takes it for you and he gives you his righteousness. So come and do that today. In your own words, in your own thoughts, prayer of your heart, confess to Jesus that he is your Lord. Believe in your heart that he died in your place, that he rose from the dead, and you will be saved from the perishing of the wicked. If you have put your faith in Jesus and today you're, you're more aware by the grace of God and his Holy Spirit of your own sin and not finding delight in the word of God, but trying to find delight other places, trying to find joy other places, trying to find nourishment other places, I want to encourage you to own that. Just to, yep, that's me. That's me. I've been trying to find enjoyment in life and I've been trying to find nourishment in life in other places. To own that and come before Jesus and let him know. He already knows. He just wants you to tell him. Confess it in all of its entirety, all of it. Be detailed and humbly come before him and receive his grace and his love and forgiveness. Ask him to restore and create a delight in him through his word. I encourage you to set up rhythms and pattern of your life of, of communing with God by meditating on his word day and night. To meditate on the word of God. To mutter the truths of God to yourself. Because in them we are led to life. Every one of us is longing for life, like a fullness of life. And Jesus has said, I've come to give you that abundant life. It's found in him, and his word is an extraordinary gift that leads us to that life. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for...
the gift of Jesus and the gift of your word that leads us humbly and broken to him. God, would you move in this moment now that we would respond rightly to your truth, that we would respond rightly to your word in confession and repentance, that we would respond humbly and broken and in you we would find healing and restoration. Jesus, would you would you save souls this morning? In living rooms, in cars, on couches, in this room right here, would you save souls? Would you lead people from wickedness and into righteousness, that they would believe in you? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.